Okay, freaks, this is the guide to your psychopath. This podcast is not about me telling you how you're fucked up. I'm here to learn about your past and how it affects your decision making. I've been studying people for a long time now, but I've never asked them about how their mind goes through the process. I want to read your guide. I want to know how you think and feel. This will not be edited to take snippets out of context, but I believe everyone will benefit from hearing all of the conversation. Learning your guide will make it better for me to understand you. Welcome to the Guide to Your Psychopath. This episode, I don't know if uh, you want to state your name or not. Uh, do you want to stay anonymous? No, I'm happy to state my name. So what's your name? My name is Erica Flores. Erica Flores. And uh, the way I do this is I like to start from the very beginning. Do you know where your mom was born? I do. Where was she born? <laughs> uh, she was born in El Salvador. El San Salvador. Salvador. Yes. And do you know where your dad was born? Yes. He was born in Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico. Oh, okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm Mexi Salvi, Salvi Mexi. <laughs> okay. Half. half and half. Yes. And how does that work out? Do you see a lot of people hating on you because of that? You, you know, it's an interesting question to ask because no, no hate, but I, I definitely grew up being very aware of the tensions between, between the the, both. I mean, if I say countries, that's alluding to some type of political tension there, which exists yes. and has existed. But I, I, I'm referring more toward the, the people. And I was born in Mexico, and I... What part of Mexico? Mexicali, Mexicali. Baja California, so up north. Okay. And when I speak Spanish, I speak it fluently. I, I sound and speak like a Mexican. And although I was raised primarily by a Salvadorian woman, my mother, and she shared her culture with us throughout my, my, my years growing up and to this day, I have always leaned more toward my Mexican side, mm -hmm. possibly because I just grew up with a lot of Mexican people around me, and the Mexican culture was very present, and watching Latino television with a lot of Mexican um, representation. Mm -hmm. And so, but back to the question, what was that like? I feel to this day, and growing up certainly, that... There was a lot of disdain and pushback from Mexicans against Salvadorians, mm -hmm. and I I was very from a from a very early age I realized that many Mexicans not all because I, I not all, not all Mexicans are like that right but many Mexicans did not like Salvadorians and there was this classes. Um, thing happening where oftentimes Mexicans felt that they were better than Salvadorians. And Salvadorians, being part of Central America, there's a very high percentage of indigenous people, mm -hmm. uh, and it's still a developing country. And so I think that that portrays to the way that to this day in modern times people interact with each other. And there are a lot of misconceptions about... Do you think a lot of Mexicans uh, see all the negativity, like all the Mara Sabatrucha stuff, and they just think that that's what El Salvador is about? They don't see the beauty in the culture? I think that's part of it, right? I think, I think the media plays a good part in that. But also beyond Mara Salvatrucha, because believe me, I mean, Mexico has its own set of organized 
crime <laughs> and issues that we were, we're certainly not detached from. But I think it, it goes back to this just classism and discrimination and racism that, that moves beyond having individuals who might identify or do identify with organized crime or have committed certain uh, crimes, right? I think that it goes beyond that. And it's just that, generally speaking, again, not all Mexicans, but there's a good amount of Mexican people who I met throughout my life. And I think it's not uh, just my own experience. I think it's, it's that solid across the board that, generally speaking, there is a lot of oppression towards Central American people, Salvadorians being one of them. And it's just interesting that uh, my parents got along <laughs> until they didn't and got divorced later on. But all of my, from my dad's side, he, large family and mostly men, uh, hermanos, brothers, and they all either married or had children with Salvadorian women. Really? So all of my cousins from my dad's side, we're all half Mexican, half Salvi. So it's just so interesting. And they weren't, uh, the women that they married weren't related to each other? Like, nope. didn't they know? Huh. Not related at all. That's crazy, because you'll see sometimes these Mexican men will marry like a different class of woman or whatever, but that woman will have cousins or whoever yes. that the the guy's family right. will start getting together with. Yes. And that's how they all, but uh, that, that was, was not, not the that case. That was not the case with us, no. Yeah. But, um, you know, you're right. I do see a lot of, um, I don't know if it's machismo or they're taking orgullo to a different story because like even within each other, the Mexican men, they battle, well, I'm from Guadalajara or I'm from Jalisco or Colima mm -hmm. or whatever, and they start fighting each other for that. But it's just the amount of uh, negativity that's being portrayed doesn't, it, it's, it, doesn't sum up the beauty in the, the culture of El Salvador mm -hmm. and doesn't come up with the beauty of mm -hmm. Mexico. And for them to come together like that, it's, it's pretty awesome. Yes. No, and, and I agree with that. And I think that, uh, I mean, machismo, which is a whole conversation in itself, <laughs> in itself right, right, spreads across the board from just, it's so inherent in the Latino community. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that's just singular to Mexico, sadly. I think Salvadorian men and just Latino Cubans. men. I mean, men, period, yeah. right? There's this machismo that comes up, which is born out of patriarchy, which, like I said, it's a very complex uh, thing to dismantle, and it certainly oppresses and affects women and just societies, period, mm -hmm. because men are generally taught that the world belongs to them. The world is their oyster. And so in the Latino community, at least, there's a lot of ownership, feeling of ownership that she's my woman and I, you know, uh, yes, and, and pride as well. Yeah. And I think the pride, as we all are, it's like we're part of the soccer team and we're from here, this part of Mexico, and you're from that part, and there's a lot of pride. And I think that's that's very much protected, and you see it also in, in, anywhere, right? We're from this part, and and, and you root for your people, um, but then when you inject machismo and, um, dominance, yes, all that stuff, I, I, I think, I think Salvadorian women are not, uh, sadly they, they experience also a lot of difficulties in relationships because of all, all that machismo that is born from 
Latino men. Yeah. And um, to some extent, my mother was a byproduct of that, and she experienced that at the hands of my father. And so that led eventually to their divorce, and now they're best of friends. Oh, no, they're not. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they're really good friends. You know, I find it interesting that, uh, you know, my parents were born in Mexico, and so all my uncles and everybody were born in Mexico, and I, I listen to all the Mexican music, whether it's banda, rancheras, mm-hmm. uh, mariachi, whatever. All these men are talking about what a woman's power has over them. Like, it makes them sad, and it leaves them in the bar for days at a time, right. and this and that. But then they go out, and they dominate over their women. They, I mean, it, it's just weird how they they can't... I don't know. Right. It's just weird to me. It's it's very dramatic. Yes, very much so. And it's very true what you, what you say. If you listen to the lyrics... It's about women having so much power and control over these men that their, their lives get completely and, yeah. destroyed, if you will. Mm-hmm. And you're right, they're at the bar and, and drinking their last days or their life away, yeah. suffering over, over that woman who left them for someone else, yeah. right? Um, but I think in reality that, I mean, that it's very dramatized, Um and I think there's a lot of dominance and ownership in that, that you are my property and you belong to me and I need you in my life. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that taps into, into so many other things such as um, daddy issues or mommy issues and mental health yeah. and, and just having ownership over the woman. And if the women leave them, then there are consequences. And the consequences, I think, oftentimes are not as pretty as they are conveyed in uh, the lyrics of a song, right? Yeah. It's not that aquí muere, ya te, te, te dediqué una canción, I dedicated the song to you and that's it. I'm going to take a few more tragos, shots of tequila, and it's over. I think then uh, what we see a lot of times is uh, a lot of violence. Domestic abuse and you can't leave me, I'm going to beat you to hell yes. or whatever. And then the men spiraling into uh, substance abuse. Yes. And, and that then gets normalized, right? Because then it continues to fuel this toxic patriarchy and machismo and, and, and abuse for alcoholism and other substances of it is normalized to then if something bad happens, if I lose my job, if I have an issue at home, I'm going to drink my, my, sor- my sorrows away, right? And it's funny at times and you grow up normalizing this, but then once you see it in your household... It's not funny. That the men are drinking and that's what they do and the women have a role to take care of the men and and cater to them when they feel saddened and and go to the to the bar to drink away it's not pretty right it it destroys families it really does so <clears throat> you were born in mexicali yes when did you get to the united states i came here in 1994 how old were you i was 9 i had just turned 9 just turned 9 so in, in when you were living in uh, mexicali mhm were you going to school? Yes. What was school like? Do you remember? I do. I do. I completed most of my primary elementary level education in Mexico. Mm. And thanks to that education, I learned how to read and write and understand Spanish really well. I mean, that foundation was established from a very early um, stage. And you would think that um, the way Americans see the education system in Mexico, mm-hmm. they think it's crap. Do you, 
That's not what you experienced. It's not what I experienced, but let me tell you why. Because at the same time, I think my educational experience was different to some extent. Because while my parents came from a lot of poverty and we lived a very humble lifestyle, I didn't know at the time. Now as an adult woman, looking back, I'm able to reflect and understand that we were privileged. And I mean privileged in the sense that by the time I was born, my parents had... uh, they were involved in commerce and they were entrepreneurs and they had successful businesses. And so my parents were able to pay for my, for me to have a private education. So I went to private school Mm -hmm. with nuns because we were Catholic, of course. Right. Yeah. And so thanks to, so I was, I was able to go to a private education, get a private education. So I was not in public school. So that was my experience at the time. Mm When I talk to other people who went to school in Mexico and had the opportunity to go to public, get a public education, I also hear that it was a quality education. Okay. But it gets to a point where you have to pay for your books. You have to pay for your, your, your pencils, for sometimes transportation. And so what, you're, what you see is that a lot of children and young, um, young adults stop going to school because they simply can't afford it. Yeah. And I think that while we have a percentage of people in Mexico or Latin America who encourage and support uh, and push for education and higher education over their children and and, and the the younger generation, what I also experience and what I know being part of that community is that having a job and having income is also very much valued. Yes. So Taking care of your family. Absolutely. So it's not uncommon to hear, well, just ponte a trabajar, we'll just start working, right? Mm-hmm. Because as long as you're bringing in money, you are bringing pride to us and you're fine. And especially as a woman, uh, uh, what you do all see also is that women in, in education is not as important because the idea is that you're going to get married and have children and your husband's going to take care of you and you're going to take care of the house. And that's that. You don't need an education for that. You don't need an education. And so a lot of that also, you hear that and see that more from uh, more like rural communities and communities of people who, again, the value is from having a big family and Mm. working. So, yes, I was in school and that experience was a positive experience. I learned how to read and write really well. Uh, I'm not Catholic anymore. I stopped practicing and identifying with the Catholic faith many years ago. But they were very strict. The the nuns were very strict. And we had prayer Wednesdays. I still remember there was this chapel, which was one of the classrooms, and we would go. And we were made, not asked, but made to get on our knees and pray to the Virgin. And a lot of that instilled um, fear and respect that I still have to this day for um, not organized religion because I don't support organized religion, but for having a connection with a higher power mm-hmm. and having a higher power to lean on, whether that is God or whatever. Whatever you call it. Whatever someone chooses to call it. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then from then, I was in second grade. When my parents, I was finishing second grade, and I think I believe I finished second grade there in Mexico when my parents, uh, my mom decided to leave my dad. And she, as I said, she's from, from El Salvador. 
So my mom packed whatever she could, and it was my older sister, me, and my younger sister, so three of us. And we were all chicas. We were small. And at the time, I was eight, probably seven, going on eight. So I was a young child. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mom just said, we're going to Salvador. And again, to be in Mexico and be able to travel, I didn't know at the time, but that is a huge privilege. If you have money to be able to get a passport, to get a visa, and to get a uh, plane ticket to go anywhere. And so we were not overly wealthy by any means because, again, my parents made sure that we lived in very hum- in a very humble manner. But um, we would go to El Salvador, and, you know, at the time, my mom never sat down and talked to us and said, hey, mija, we're going to be going to El Salvador for this amount of time because this is happening. We, were, we just left. <laughs> so we had gone to El Salvador, and I say this because we had gone to El Salvador previously on vacation to visit the family out there, my mom's side of the family. And next thing we, next thing you know, we are in El Salvador, but my mom is signing us, my sisters and I, up for school. And that's when I got a culture shock at that young age of seven going into eight. Yeah. Because I think people convolute Mexicans and Salvadorians or Mexicans and Latinos across. Oh, they're Mexican, when in fact they could be anything else. And the cultures are vastly different. Vastly different. I mean, we have Spanish in common and maybe a couple other things, but even there are words, so many words in Spanish and the accent that's different. So once I started going to school, then you're really tossed into the way people and children are and they are being trained to be yeah. as young Salvadorians. <laughs> So that was the first time that I experienced someone being making fun of my accent. And I recall sitting in, cl- in the classroom, wearing my uniform, it was blue, uh, being afraid because it was a completely different environment. And yes, I do believe that children do adopt, they, they adapt very easily. But at the same time, there's it does take time that to do that though. transition period. Yeah. And no one was talking to me. No one's, no one's sitting down and explaining anything to me, which I wish now that there would have been some type of discussion or explanation, even though I probably would not have had the skills to fully understand everything. It would have eased some of the confusion and just, it just I was unsure of what was going on and why I was now going to school there. Yeah. And I recall that... Um, the children started, my classmates started making fun of my accent. And I was just in shock. Because I had gone to El Salvador before, but I didn't know that I spoke differently. Mm-hmm. My family didn't say anything. And I didn't really pay attention to that, and no one had brought it up. And Did, when you had gone there on vacation, you never went and played with any of the neighborhood kids or anything? With my cousins, mostly oh, with my cousins. cousins. Yeah, That's a different story, though. They never yeah, they brought, never brought it up or anything. Yeah. And neither did I. I, I don't recall ever bringing it up or, or mocking them. Yeah. And also, I don't think my parents would have allowed or my mom would have allowed for me to even make fun of anything related to the culture. It was just not the way we were raised. Yeah. So when children at school started making fun of me, I would go home crying. And that's when I started feeling different. 
and and the confusion became even deeper. And I recall not wanting to be there anymore because I missed home. Yeah. And and I I think that's so deep, right? Yeah. And it helps me and has helped me understand how first generation immigrants or recent immigrants into the, in this country feel so disenfranchised at times and separated mm-hmm. from others because you sound different, you look different, you're, you, you, you might speak good English, quote unquote, but there's that little accent that comes out sometimes. You're not fully assimilated, right? Yeah. So after that, again, my mom didn't, and I'm not trying to vilify my mom by any means. I think she was going through, now that I'm older, looking back and have had my own share of relationships and breakups and heartbreaks, I, I think that my mom was really heartbroken over the rupture of her marriage because I do know that she loved my dad very, very much so. And my dad was unfaithful, mm. just grossly unfaithful. Yeah. And beyond being unfaithful, he committed so many other grievances that affected her and us. And I think he was very, not only negligent toward my mother, but very reckless and selfish. And I think she was shocked. And to do that in front of the kids. In front of the kids, but to her, right? Who, yeah. who she had married and loved and, and invested in and committed to. And, she, and then she had just found out she was pregnant with my youngest sister, Flor. Um, she's, just, she's pregnant, probably trying to figure out, do I need time away from him? from my relationship to figure out what we're going to do. Am I going to go back with him? Am I not? So I think she was going through all of that. And so she never sat down and said, this is what's going on, right? And I just didn't know where my dad was. Because <laughs> yeah. my dad would always be on business trips or out and about, right? I mean, he was at home, but he wasn't there. So it wasn't unusual to not see him. So I just thought, we're just here. I don't know what he's at. Yeah. And next thing you know, uh, we pack our things up again. And we're flying to L.A. So when we were in Mexicali, we would also go to L.A. because my parents had um, businesses. Mm-hmm. They, they sold merchandise. And a lot of the merchandise was purchased out in, in, in L.A. So we would come to L.A. And I had a visa. And so it was not the first time coming to L.A. And we had flown to, to El Salvador. So now we're flying to L.A. because my mom had, to this day, my uncle lives there, but a brother who, who lives in LA. So we went to stay with him. So then I'm plucked out of school from El Salvador. Again. And then I, we come to LA and then I'm put into a school in LA. And did you know English at that time? Pardon? No, I didn't. So no questions, no, this is what's going to happen. And this is why. Now I know because my mother has told me that she chose to leave El Salvador. She went there because her family was there. She was looking for refuge and moral support. Did she get it? I think to some extent she did. I think, I think my grandmother did try to, in her own way, she did provide the support that she felt at the time her daughter needed. And, and she, my grandmother loved us, and she's still alive, and I know she loves us. And... What I hear now is that my mom didn't no longer felt connected 
to the Salvadorian way. Mm -hmm. And she had gone back to now with the vision of living in El Salvador again. And she just felt that it was a different different time in El Salvador, a different El Salvador. Yeah. And she no longer, she, she couldn't get used to it. Maybe she needed more time. We were there for close to a year. And then we ended up coming to L.A. So now I'm in L.A. And now we're in school in L.A. And I speak no English. And we went to uh, Los Angeles School District. We lived In L.A., there's a lot of Mexicans. There are, and a lot of Salvadorians, too. Yeah. And did, did that help out the situation? It did. It did. And, and it, it, was, it was helpful, but also it did a disservice to me. And I'll tell you why, at least in school. Because we lived first, we lived in Watts, and then we moved to this area in Compton. No, we lived in Compton the other way around, and then we moved to this area in Watts. This was what year? By now, it's 94. Had the gentrification of the area been uh, started or? In some parts. In some parts. You didn't see as much in, in the area that I was in. Okay. And I think that's become rampant in the last few years. Yeah. The, uh, you see gentrification all over L.A. now. But at the time where, where I lived, it was not, I think it was just starting. I mean, you saw it in other areas, but not where I lived. So we lived in a very poor community drug-infested community that I learned to love, and I felt safe there. <laughs> I Did it remind you of Mexico? No, not at all. The Mexico that I lived in, parts of the Mexico that I lived in in Mexicali were poor, uh -huh. but my community was humble, but it was very community-centric and family-oriented. Everybody talked to each other and kind of looked after each other. Whatever, yes, but yes. And I felt safe. And I felt safe walking down and up and down the street on my own. Yeah. Right. They knew where I lived. They knew who my mom and dad were. And um, I mean, nothing ever happened to me, thankfully. And then in L.A., nothing ever happened to me either. So now my little sister's born and she was born here in, in L.A. Okay. So all of this happened within a year, right? Actually, my, nine months. So my mom gets to El Salvador, finds out she's pregnant, and she's like, "We, I don't feel comfortable here, comes to L.A. I think she's still trying to figure out what she's going to do. She's pregnant, so she needs to think quick. Yeah. Right? And she, I think it's that's when she decided, I'm not going back with, with your dad. Again, nothing is being told to us. My dad's just missing <laughs> for months now. <laughs> and nothing's being told to us. Um, I think I, that's when, when I started, I figured it out. Daddy's not coming back. Without asking questions. Yes. I mean, we were living on our own, and my mom was doing everything. But that was not rare because my mom always did everything. Yeah. She fed us. She cleaned the house. She cooked. And she worked. She took us to school. She picked us up. She clothed us. She bathed us. She talked to us. And I recall, my, I mean, my dad was there, but he wasn't. And I did have a good relationship with him. But the one who was there all the time was my mom. But my dad was not abusive to me or my sisters. He never hit me. He, Did you ever see him hit your mom? No. Hmm. And I learned of physical abuse later on. And that broke my heart to know that my mom had been 
abused by my father, not only physically, but verbally and emotionally and mentally. Um, but that I never saw that. And she talked about that later on. And... Well, we'll get back to that in a minute. But uh, so you're living in Watts mm-hmm. with your uncle, and he's not married? My uncle lived in Compton. Uh, in Compton. And he, he's not married. We stayed with who was my aunt at the time because my uncle was a womanizer, and he had a lot of different ladies, and I have a lot of different cousins from the various relationships that he had. Very good-looking guy. Uh, so I think women were very fond of him. Mm-hmm. And he was with my aunt, but he didn't live with her. Oh. So we lived in a room. And then they break up, my uncle and, and my aunt, but they have a child. And there's a lot of tension. And so my aunt, or who was my aunt, because I didn't really grow up with her, <laughs> uh, began to vent to my mom in front of us about her displease for my uncle, uh, okay. right? Because okay. they, they had just broken up and there's all this tension. And again, my mom doesn't talk to us, but I know now that she thought, I need to get out of here. I don't want to get in between this. And again, my mom's going through her own set of issues, right? So she doesn't need any more. Drama. She she doesn't need the, she just it was emotionally taxing. I mean, imagine you're going through your own heartbreak and then you're having to hear all of these things, which are valid. But we were in a little room, so we end up moving. Excuse me, down the street to now to where now becomes Watts, and we lived in an uh, apartment building. Um, very very low income. <laughs> apartment building, mostly all brown, Latino, and black people living there. Mm-hmm. And it was my first time that I got to live closely to black people. I mean, I had seen a black person, but I had never really... Interacted? No. No interactions, no observing them from a distance to see what they act like? I mean, what they act, I mean, you mean like the, their culture, the community, how yeah, they are? Yeah, the, co- the community of the black people. I, it was my first time interacting and, and witnessing that. Yeah. Prior to that, I think very, very few um, Afro-Latinos, black Mexicans in Mexico uh, was rare in Mexicali. When I would come to L.A., you would see more people of color, more, I mean, people of color all over Mexico, but you would see more... Uh, black people here. Mm-hmm. And so I had I had interacted before, but not to the extent of now we're living down the, down the hallway from each other. Yeah. So I'm living there and then I'm going to school there and back to your question of where there are a lot of Mexicans and Spanish pe- speaking people there in the community. There were but also on campus um, the elementary school that I went to. And I didn't I didn't know how to speak English. But the vast majority of the professors, even the white professors, the white teachers at the elementary school, spoke Spanish. And so what happened was that they would talk to me in Spanish to make it easier for me. But it didn't help me at the time. To learn English. Because I was not learning English at the speed that to catch up with my peers. Yeah. 
So I either at first I couldn't understand and there was a huge learning curve and disadvantage because if you can't understand, right, you're playing catch up all the time and you're confused half the time because you don't know what they're telling you. Imagine you're in a different country that you, you don't speak the language and they're speaking to you and you want to understand. So sometimes I felt frustrated, but I, it began to grow on me. I began to learn the language and uh, my sister, my sister Edith and also a- April, the one right under- underneath me, we all went to the same school. So that was helpful, right? I knew I wasn't alone. I saw familiar faces. And the, uh, the children spoke Spanish. Yeah. So I began to make friends with them. And there were other children who only spoke English. And so I began to interact with them. And so I began to practice having to speak. And the bullying continued, right? Because I don't speak English now. Because you were different. I was different, and when I did try, I wasn't enunciating things properly according to the way that a good English speaker should speak. And so that continued, and I I mean, I didn't like that. I missed, that's the part of Mexico that I missed, that nobody ever told me, you speak funny. Yeah. Nobody ever told me, we don't understand what you're saying. Because everybody spoke the same there, and you had their accent. I mean, it was, it was, I was part of a tribe, yeah. and I was, I was not different. I spoke like them. I had the same accent uh, as they did. And then that happened in El Salvador and now in, in, in L.A., and so I'm like, wow, I, I felt like now I'm, I'm just... Uh, you're always going to be an outcast. <laughs> It felt that way. Yeah. It felt that way. And also, we were struggling. We were really poor. Just, I realized that when I was in Mexico, we never went hungry. And I wasn't wasn't concerned where I was going to get a sweater to go to school, right? It was just placed on me, put on me, and I would go to class. And I was fed. And now here... My mom was learning the system that you can apply for um, if you if you make certain income and low income, you can apply for free lunch for your kids, right? Yeah. Well, while that was happening, I'm not giving I'm not being given lunch money, so I'm going hungry, <laughs> and we don't really have clothes at home, so I'm cold. And I don't know where my dad is at. And we have a little sister at home who's a baby and is crying all the time. And my mom's out working all the time. And so I'm the second oldest, and I begin to play the role of the oldest, and I become parentify, and I begin... My life just changed drastically, right? I began to change diapers and take care of my younger sibling, um, April as well and co-parents with my older sister, Edith, and my mom, and cook. Did she start, your older sister, did she help out a lot? She did, and we've talked about this. I think Edith helped in her own way. I think from an early age, Edith rebelled, and Edith, in her own way, because she never said this to me until later on, essentially said, I didn't sign up for this. These are not my children, and so I'm not going to cook and clean and do all of this. And my personality was, a, my take on things and my personality was a little differently. I was a little bit more submissive. And 
but you felt empathy for your mom. I did. And you wanted to help her because you saw her struggle. I did. I think Edith felt empathy also, but at the same time, she began to advocate for herself as well. Because I think that there, now looking back, there needs to be a line or there should have been a line of your child. And yes, I need your help, but the amount of responsibility that was placed on my shoulders was significantly high to what a child should not be doing. I mean, I was not being helped. Again, this is not to vilify my mom. She was struggling doing the best she could in a country that she didn't know without speaking the language, feeding her four children because my dad, by, by then I had seen him, he had come over. So now my, he's not living with us, but he knew where we were at, right? And he's checked out. You know, he's, he's, he would ask, ¿Cómo están? How are you? But he's not asking us, do you need anything? Or, my goodness, do, you know, why don't you have a sweater? It's cold outside. He's just like, okay, you're here. I know you're here. Your mom's here. Good. And bye. And he was living his life. In Mexico or? Both. He would come into the U.S. all the time. And he was living in Mexico mostly. But he would travel back and forth. And there were talks about getting my mom back and I want you all back. But the effort made and shown really was not... Different story. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I figured out it is what it is. This, is. this is our life now. And it was hard. Do you see many kids with the similar situations in the poor community that you lived in? Absolutely. A lot of single-parent-led households, led by the women, led by women, women of color, led by immigrant women of color yeah. who are badasses in their own right, like my mom, right, mm -hmm. who was struggling and trying to make it and figuring it out. And she could have walked away, but she didn't walk away. And who was heartbroken and probably really scared, right? Um, I'm 36 now, and I believe at the time, my mom had me when she was 28. So I was seven, eight, going on nine. So my mom was around the same age as I am now when we arrived here in 94. Imagine, I mean, I speak English, right? I have my own income. I have my own vehicle. I know how to, how to advocate for myself. And there are days where, when it is hard, <laughs> And I don't have any children, and I don't have a spouse, and I'm not going through a divorce. So imagine now. But it's hard on you trying to get through and be just successful. Life, just life in itself, right? Yeah. Things happen, and yeah. bills come, and you're struggling for other reasons, and things come up. But, I mean, I have two puppies, and that's not overwhelming, but it's a responsibility that I, that I take upon myself. Yeah. Now think for children. And we're talking and walking, <laughs> right? And I'm sure sometimes I talk back, <laughs> right? I was a good kid. I was a good kid, but, but still, I... still, kids are kids. Exactly. That's what they're going to do. Yeah. And, yeah. and we all had big personalities. And my sister Edith certainly did not stay quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and neither did April, the one underneath me. And Flora was a baby and she would cry. <laughs> yeah. So it was a loud house. It was a busy house. Yeah. And so... 
you're getting through this and you're going through elementary school and you start getting into junior high. And you still see, you're still living in a poor neighborhood. Very poor neighborhood. Neighborhood. Yeah. And you're in junior high. Do you, did you start assimilating? Did you still didn't like the situation you were in? Did, were, what was the situation in junior high? Uh, it got worse before it got better. Okay. So by now, I'm already speaking English. It's broken, right? That took a minute because, again... The teachers. The teachers <laughs> wouldn't speak to me in English. No. And they wanted to make it easy for me. God bless them, but again, it delayed my, my adapting and learning the language. Uh, in elementary school, I was thriving. I've always loved school. Always. I love education. And um, I, I was thriving despite of the conditions at home, mm-hmm. the hunger, the sharing a queen-size bed, all of us. I mean, we all lived in a room. And having one itty-bitty car to do everything, right? And, and having the responsibilities of cooking and cleaning and then completing my homework assignments and walking to school and making sure I, was, I got back home safe because that was my responsibility, right? And also my responsibility to ensure my siblings got home safe because if not, I was in trouble. So now in junior high, by junior high, um, when I say that it got worse before it got better, my mom by then began dating someone. And this person very rapidly became very, very abusive Mm. and very controlling and dominant. And next thing you know, again, no talk, no no conversation, no, hey, mija, this is going to happen. This is my partner. We're going to live together. It just happened. Next thing you know, we're living with this guy, and or he's living with us, and I don't like it. I didn't like him to begin with. I, I didn't have the words at the time to explain like I am now. He was dominant. He was abusive. He was controlling, et cetera, and break it down as, the, as to the reasons why. In my young... 10, 11-year-old mind, I just felt uncomfortable, and I saw things that I didn't like. And also, I was already not really seeing my mom at home because she was working all the time. And when she was home, she was sleeping, trying to catch up for tomorrow. And now I'm really not seeing her because whatever little time is she's spending it with this guy. And this guy is very, very controlling. He wants all of her. So he's not trying to help her be a better mom to say, hey, Let's spend time or spend time with your children, right? It's, I want you, but I want you and you alone. Your daughters, I don't really care for, right? And I, I, I knew that. I felt that. I felt this man doesn't care for us. I could tell he, I'm just, um, I'm in the way. <laughs> Whatever it is that he wants, right, or needs. So things move very, very fast with him. And he became, there was a lot of domestic violence going on at home. At one point, we were living in this shack in the city of industry. We lived next to a, there were, we lived in a truck freight industry, which was very unhealthy because of all the diesel fuel and diesel exhaust and all the noise and the nuisance and the noise pollution and air pollution and the traffic, very dangerous. 
and we lived next to a truck car wash. And I was put in school, and Edith was in All of us were put in school. So now I'm going to this brand new school and uh, for, for junior high. I believe I'm in fifth grade. Again, I loved school. But it was difficult because you're sitting in class, and I'm having to reintroduce myself to all of these children, and I'm the new girl, right? Mm. So I feel that I need to have them like me because I want to make friends. And this man told my mom that my, my older sister's uh, name is Edith. He said, hey, Edith is old enough to work, so she's no longer allowed to go to school. She's now going to come work with me and help me at the shop because he worked at a, at a car shop. And they pulled, it out, pulled her out of school. Really? Yes. So Edith <laughs> stops going to school. Edith is your older sister. Yes. She had rebelled before. Yes. Did she start rebelling even more yes. so on e- this? Edith, I began to become more outspoken, yeah. right? And this guy was interesting. We started talking about machismo, right? Because he was the leader of the machismo movement. <laughs> <laughs> he was the main organizer. And he did not like, especially young women, right, who were... Telling him his business. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I started becoming very outspoken because believe it or not, at the time, I was a little sh- on the shyer side. I, I was taught to stay in my lane and don't say anything, which I think is a disservice to, to young women, to children p- pretty much, right? To shut them down from having an opinion and, and speaking up and learning how to use the word no. And when I did... There were consequences, right? Especially by this man now in, in this family. And uh, in our family, when I say our family, my sisters and my mom. And he, Edith was not having it, but she's a child. And at the end of the day, where is she going to go if she says no? I mean, this is, this is where she's at. Yeah. I was very unhappy and I felt violated for my sister and for me, for us, I was not happy. And pretty fast, I mean, this man was already becoming very, very, I mean, making major decisions, harmful decisions for, for us. And if I didn't like him then, at the t- before that, I really didn't like him now. And he began putting his hands on my mom. And he, one day... My mom um, was pregnant with him, with his child, and um, he wouldn't let her take showers by herself because he would say that there might, she might let another man in what? the bathroom. So He sat there and watched her. Yes. So then he's in the bathroom with her, uh, monitoring her, right, policing her. And he begins to tell her, you're, you're cheating on me. You're cheating on me. And I could hear him yelling over the bathroom door. There's another man. You're cheating on me. What guarantees me that that's my child? You're cheating on me. And next thing you know, he comes out of the bathroom and begins to pile up all of the living room furniture, which there was not much, by the way, but all of the furniture in the middle of the living room. 
to create some type of bonfire. In the living room. And he said, I'm going to burn the house down and you and your daughters with it because you belong to me and you're not going to be unfaithful and you're not going to go with anyone else. So my mother comes out of the bathroom. She's naked. And I can see her protruding belly because she's pregnant. And he's getting uh, a match, matches. And he's going to burn the house. And he's trying to turn on the the matches to catch the house on fire. It, this is like a movie scene for me. I'm a child. I mean, I'm going on 12, and I'm standing there. I'm sure I wasn't standing there, right? But, I mean, it all happened so fast. And this is before cell phones, by the way. Oh, yeah, <laughs> obviously. And I think it was Edith, my sister, who picked up the phone and called 911. And in her also broken English... <laughs> Call the cops, and the cops arrived and arrested him. And that was the last time I saw him. Oh, my God. Yeah. So the house, he was close to catching on fire. I don't know if he actually turned on a, 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 match. a match and ended up throwing it in there, but it didn't catch on fire. I don't. But the point is that he was so checked out. Excuse me. And we were no longer safe to stay there. That we ended up going to a shelter for abuse families and their children. Four kids. Your mom's pregnant. Mm -hmm. You guys have to leave everything you guys know. Everything. And you guys checked into a shelter. They picked us up. I hadn't talked, I haven't spoken about this, I think, in years. Probably the last time I talked about this was with, I, I, we speak about this sometimes, Edith and I, yeah. because we are the oldest and we remember this more than my younger siblings. And we go to a shelter. And I think we ended up living in two or three different shelters in the LA area. And eventually there was a space open up in Almani. So we end up living in a, in a shelter in Almani. So during this time, I'm just getting moved into different schools. And finally, when we moved to Almani, I mean, no one's talking to us again. I mean, no one's talking to me. This has now become like, this is normalized, right? You got to figure out what's happening and, and look around because no one's telling me this, 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 and that. It's just, this is your new home. Here you go. That's your bed. Go to sleep. Showers are at this time. You have to wake up this time. Breakfast is at this time. And this is where you're going to go to school. And you start Monday at this time. So I had no control of anything. And I have no clothes, no nothing, right? So the shelter had a, in the office, there were bags of clothes that people would donate. So they said, go there and find, pick something out. whatever you can. Whatever fits you. So now I'm a preteen and I am dressed like a (laughs) 50 something year old lady, right? I mean, there was nothing that was fashionable, at least for me at the time. It was, hey, this fits, this works, just, just, that's it. So I ended up going to school, and um, I had missed a big chunk of school also. Because you had been bouncing around. I had been bouncing around from shelter to shelter, and when my mom was with this man, it was not as if they just transferred me and put me to school right away. I mean, there were periods of time when I was not matriculated, I was not in school. So... 
I missed, um, I missed all of mo- uh, most of fifth grade, and I did part of fifth grade. I missed all of sixth grade. So then they didn't know where to place me. Should she go and do, redo fifth grade? Should we put her in sixth grade? Or she's at the age where she should be going into seventh grade. So what do we do with her? Yeah. So they have me take a test to a placement test. And I just sat there and I took it. I did the best that I could. And When you took this test, how did it feel to you? Uh, I don't remember very don't well. Remember? I don't. I just remember going somewhere, sitting down, and them telling me, here, do this, and we'll figure out where you will belong. go, where you belong. Yeah. So I sat there, no prep course, no nothing the night before, right? It's just you, with whatever knowledge I have, <laughs> sit and do it. And so I did the exam, and they decided, the school district decided that I would be placed on seventh grade. So I go into seventh grade. So I skipped all of sixth grade. I never went to sixth grade. That's pretty good for you to have that kind of education, even though you were, A, taking care of your sisters. Yes. And taking care of the house. Yes. And being abused. Yes. And this and yes. that. Yes. So now I'm in seventh grade, and then I finished seventh, eighth grade. Then I moved into... Uh, Was seventh and eighth grade kind of a breeze? Uh, yes and no, because there was still transition, thank you, there was still a transition of having to, we're living in a shelter, and then after X amount of time, a few months, the shelter had a system in place to eventually get the women to get back into society and assimilate and get their own place, right? Uh, I'm grateful for that now, looking back. It was not just a thing of, you can stay here a couple of days and then buy, they helped you save money to eventually help and then help you get your own place. So as a result of that, we ended up getting our own place. My mom was able to raise enough money to rent her own apartment with us, and we were able to move there. So those transitions were tough because... But at that time, even if she was working one job, she had to have been working two jobs, right, to get something like that? She was more... I think she was working multiple jobs. She did yeah. a lot of... Um, selling natural products and multi-level companies, anything that she could do from home or door knocking and selling at the swap meet. I mean, you name it, she was doing a ton of things. So she was not very available because of having to work. So now we have our own place. And so seventh and eighth grade become easier because there's more stability, which is something that I had not had since I was a child back in Mexicali. Yeah. And when you don't have stability, it's so unhealthy. I mean, it can really lead to you having unstable relationships, which is what happened to me. Uh, unstable self sense of self, where you're trying to figure out who you are. And then you're trying to figure out what you deserve, right? And then all of these poor examples and poor modeling of what was already normalized, not only by my mother, but the women at the shelter, right? And seeing other women. The women in the neighborhood. My na- the women in the neighborhood, that this is the way that it is, right? Men abuse women, and you do as they say. And just if a, if a guy's nice to you and they take you out to dinner and open the door for you, wow. Yeah. That's, like, really nice. 
but it isn't. That's standard behavior. Someone being, it should be standard behavior that a man or anyone for that matter treats you like a decent human being. And I'm in a place now where I don't uh, overly compensate or celebrate that because that's just standard self of being. Yeah. (laughs) Being polite and being kind. Knowing your worth. Because I know my worth. Yeah. Right. But so a lot of things we're feeling at this time because I'm going into being a, a young adult. I'm going into my teenager. Your teen- hormones are going off the charts and you're starting to have a little bit of stability, but you're still... Right. Yeah. Right. So now we, ha- we move into our own place and I think, and I know actually that school was a, a gateway for me because I loved it. And I, I tended to, I had a tendency of thriving and doing well. And it made me feel good because at home, I was not being acknowledged. There was no, you're doing so good. I'm so proud of you. Even though you're taking care of the house, you're taking care of your sisters. And I'm taking care of my, of my studies. And your studies. Right. And I'm involved in sports and I'm in the band and... I'm doing all kinds of stuff that I would self-volunteer to do because I enjoyed it. And and I was a good girl. I really... <laughs> like I look back and I'm like, I was a really good girl. I mean, I was as polite as I could. I mean, I, I was a child, but I was I was good. But, you know, the, the girls in poor neighborhoods like that, they end up... Running with the gangs, they end up being pregnant. They end up just doing all kinds of stuff to rebel. Mm-hmm. And you didn't let that get to you. Right. You still use the endorphins that you got from studying and getting all that accomplishment to lead you down your path. Mm-hmm. I, don't know, I don't know what it was because there was not a lot of mentorship at home. <laughs> <laughs> and... When we, when I did see people who seemed gang affiliated or, quote unquote, up to no good, th- there was a lot of um, shunning and judging and from you. No, not from me, but oh. from the people around me, and including my mother. Uh, of uh, those people are up to no good. They're all drug addicts, right? The 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 women are whores, or that's no good. And I just, I don't know. I think from a, from a young age, it just didn't, I was not attracted to that. I liked school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I think I looked like a geek where I was not being offered other things. Maybe I didn't look that cool. And, and I think that helped me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, Again, because I think, you didn't have the latest fashion. I think because of the way I was dressing. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back, I never thought of that, but I think because of the way I was dressing, I think people were like, yeah, we don't want her in our gang. <laughs> no, 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 that's not what we're... Sorry, I left you for no, so long. No worry, no worries. You're in good hands. Um, and so you're living this life, and you're thriving in school, and you get into high school. Well, I'm thriving as much as I can. I'm not yeah, top yeah. of my class, right? But I'm, it's a gateway. So now my sister Edith is in high school. And I, then my mom meets someone else. 
and we end up moving to Baldwin Park. And this man is human trash. Ah, another one. But you see the pattern? Yes. Right? The pattern. And again, I'm, I'm still young, and I'm starting to see a pattern, but I don't have the words to articulate how this is a, this is a pattern and why and where this stems from. Mm-hmm. I just knew this man is not a, a good person, and he's mistreating my sisters and I. And now I'm becoming I, now I'm vocal, right? I think going through the shelter <laughs> and other things just led me to become more vocal. So now I'm in high school. I'm a freshman and going to a sophomore year, and. I was rebelling in my own way through my fashion, which we would get at the thrift store, which I love thrift stores to this day, right? Through music and my hair. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to explore and get to know who I'm becoming, who I am. I'm at this age. Mm-hmm. I'm a teenager now. So I remember this one time. Um, now we're living together again. This man's living with us, and I didn't feel comfortable with him. And... I was wearing overalls. Overalls were really in jean overalls at the time. And I remember that I had a little bit of money. I had $20. I don't remember where I got the $20 from, but I felt so rich. <laughs> and I went to this little clothing store in my neighborhood, and I bought me a pair of um, overalls. And I unbuckled one of the overalls up. Just let it dangle. And let it dangle. And I felt so cool. I just felt like, oh, my gosh. I'm like. That's it. That's it in fashion. (laughs) That's it in fashion. In my own world, right? I thought I was cool. And I'm in the kitchen. And this man comes in, my mom's partner at the time. And he says, "Put put the overall on. That's not how it's worn. I don't want you unbuckling it. You look like a boy. What are you, a marimacha? And I did not like him already. I mean, this is not the first incident. I'm giving you an example of it's building up to, right, where he's, he feels so gutsy that he can just come and tell me how I should dress, not dress, right? And there's tension in a household already. And I don't remember exactly what my reaction was or what I told him precisely, but I remember telling him, typical teenager, you're not my dad. I don't have to listen to you. <laughs> um, and he says, well, I'm the, man of the ha- I'm the man of the family, and I'm the man of, the, of this house, so you're going to do as I, as I say. So clip the overall back on, because you're a woman, you're not a marimacha, and that's what gang members do. Are you a gang member? Are you a, are you a gangster? Are you a pandillera? <laughs> right? And he starts chasing me to try to put the overall, clip it back on. He, he's trying to grab it and put it on. So I begin to go in around the kitchen table, and he's chasing me. And he says, you're going to do as I say. So, so interesting, we started talking yet again about machismo and this patriarchal um, structures in the Latino house of uh, community because... This man comes in and he is completely just having no respect for me, my person, chasing me around 
And then I run into my bedroom, and he's screaming at me. So uh, I close the door. And I was afraid, but I was pretending not to be afraid. Because I, I didn't know this man's trying to put his hands on me. What is he going to do? So then he is trying to break the door down, telling me that he's going to beat me up. And he calls my mom, and my mom's like, what's going on? And he says, uh, your daughter's a marimacha. She's a, she's a pandillera. She's a gang member. She doesn't listen to me. She, she doesn't pay attention. She's not obedient. And I'm telling you, I was so appalled because I was such a good girl listening to my mom, like doing as I was told, going to school, right? All I did was I unclipped my overall. That's all I did. And he then went around the house outside, and there was a window, and the window didn't have a curtain, so he could see from the outside in. And he starts trying to open up the window. And I'm surprised he didn't break the window, but he was trying to open it, crack it open. And he said, I'm going to go in there, and you're going to see what's going to happen to you. You're going to regret what you just did to me. His ego was so bruised. And uh, I remember being really afraid. And I said, I'm not going to come out of here. And so I was telling my mom, he wants to hit me. He's trying to hit me. Tell him something. He wants to hit me. And my mom just said, well, you have to listen to him because he's the man of the household. No, no. So I stayed there till the next day, till it was time to go to school and... He didn't put his hands on me afterwards, you know. And then that really started to build things up and tension, right? Eventually. He, he was just looking for a way to start picking on you, though. I think that, yes. that's what it, that's all about. And I think it went back to me being vocal and not letting him dominate me and, and, and run me, right, and tell me what to do. And he wasn't very nice. So... Yeah, eventually, long story short, that relationship ended. And we ended up moving to the Inland Empire. And my mom was uh, looking for a place, affordable housing. And this is now early 2000s. The affordable housing was really already unattainable, starting to become very unattainable, even in the areas outside of, of LA, the city of LA, all throughout LA County. So people are now having this internal migration where they're moving in, in inland. So we ended up in Riverside County, eventually moved to San Bernardino County, and I've been there ever since. So during that time, and I don't know how much more time we have because keep going, <laughs> keep going. We can talk I'm, for five I'm hours. In high school, so <laughs> we'll talk for five hours. It's all right. But we end up moving to inland, and during that time, I'm a sophomore in high school. I was attending Baldwin Park High School. Again, I loved it. I ran track. I was in soccer. I I loved it. I loved school. And Edith, now she's shining. I mean, Edith is like running for uh, class president and and she's popular and she's she's doing her thing and I loved it I loved seeing my sister in in her space that where she was thriving and finally really being being who I knew she was right because there was so much chaos at home and her and I knew that 
and we wouldn't really talk about it. We would. We would you guys kind of under, just understood that, we, we did. We did. Yeah. But we would focus on these extracurriculum activities at school. And we would talk about how much we didn't like this guy, right? And I was still co-parenting my younger siblings, right? Because Floor's older now, and the baby is walking now, right, Brian? And it's, it's tense at home. So I was 15 in ninth grade, and my mom um, begins to tell me, well, you're already really old, and you need to work. I mean, she started telling me that at 14. And by 15, the pressure's on. Like, what are you doing? You're already grown. Like, she was talking to me like if I was a 40-year-old living at home, not paying a penny, <laughs> And she was telling me all the time, you need to work. You know, I started working when I was eight. I would sell cheese in the streets. And you're 14. What's, you're like way behind. And so Edith and I would talk about that. So Edith started selling Avon. And she would sell candy and Avon at school. And I was a little, believe it or not, a little timid. About doing stuff About like selling that. things to my classmates. Edith did not care. Edith's like... I'm making 10 cents per Twizzler. <laughs> and that's how I'm paying for my, for my stuff, right? And so um, I start looking for work. And I start doing little things here and there, like babysitting. And uh, my friend's mom uh, was an optometrist. And sometimes she had me help her clients, clean like clean up mm -hmm. and, you know, um, size people for glasses. And she would give me $60. And I just thought... I was so rich. I just thought, whoa, $60? That's mine? I feel so, so, like, wealthy. Uh, Did your mom start taxing you? She wouldn't. Yeah, she started out, like, I would give her money. Mm -hmm. I'd give her money, and then that became, this is the way it is. Like, this is the law of this household. You, you live here, you got to pay, you got to contribute. Nobody lives here for free. And you're already old enough. Like I said, I was eight, she would tell me, when I was selling cheese, and you're already 15, so you got to work. Um, so I started to feel that pressure of I can't just be a student because I'm being told it's not fair. It's not right. I have to work. And so now I'm a sophomore, and there are issues with this man. And so my mom, uh, we end up moving. Well, he, kicks us, he kicked us out because we were living in what I didn't know at the time, but it was his property, his house. My mom was paying rent, but he kicked us out. So now we, we leave, and uh, we move inland. What city? We, we first moved to Moreno Valley. We rented a little room. And then my mom was looking into buying a house in Rupa Valley. We lived there for a few months. But before escrow closed, uh, she... There was something going on with the house. The drainage was not working well. And then we ended up moving to, uh, excuse me, San Bernardino. The city of? City of San Bernardino. So during this time, Edith is uh, going to be a senior and I'm going to be a junior. So we're two years apart, but in school we're a year apart because remember how I skipped yeah. all of uh, sixth grade? So then... We're, I'm, I'm going to be a junior. She's going to be a senior. And Edith is like, I am not leaving school. I'm going to finish, and I'm going to finish here. 
and she's very, very assertive. So she finds some a way to be able to pay rent and rent half a bedroom with this girl from school. So she stays there living with her. In Marina Valley. No, no, no. Edith oh. stays in Baldwin Park. In Baldwin Park. And she pays off her rent with Avon, off of Avon. And I didn't want to move from school because by then I'd gone to so many different schools and I finally felt a level of stability uh, at this high school and I didn't want to leave, but I had no choice. My mom was pretty much like, this is the way it is. Like Edith's staying back here, but there's no room for you there. Like Edith's already going to share a room with her friend. There's no other place you can go. And how are you going to pay? You have no money. You have no choices. And you're the one doing all the work at the house. Most of it. Because... If Edith was rebelling before, and she knows this, so if Edith ever hears this, <laughs> <laughs> right, we've had our talk about this. Uh, she Now she's, like, checked out. Like, I'm done. So we end up moving to um, Moreno Valley, and I start doing homeschool. Mm. So now I'm homeschooling, and uh, I'm a junior, I finished my junior year, and then I start going to, um, we moved to San Bernardino, and then I started off at San Bernardino High School, and then the district said, oops, we messed up, you actually belong in this other high school. So then they transferred me to another high school. So I went to five different high schools, and in total. So I graduated from Pacific High School in San Bernardino, and... By now, I'm really working. So my senior year, I was working two jobs. I'd gotten a job at Jack in the Box, and I was working a graveyard shift, or I would start um, a graveyard. Then I would go to school. I'd get out of Jack in the Box at 7.30, be in school by 8. I think the bell rung at 8.15. And then I would change in the car or change at Jack in the Box, go to school, do class, and then I would go host at Coco's and I had two jobs and I play soccer (laughs) which I loved when did you have time to sleep I was tired all the time yeah but I was fulfilling my 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 house duties right which is I was working and my mom was proud of me because I was working. And I think that I didn't know this then, but now I realized that I wanted my mom's approval so much. Yeah. I wanted her to be proud of me. And I wanted her attention because I had been re- denied of that for so long. So I thought if that means that I'm going to make her proud by working and giving her money to pay the bills, and then I'll do that, right? So then I graduated and tore... I think I had just graduated, or I was about to graduate, and the manager at Coco's, okay, before I get there, my first paycheck at Jack in the Box was for $162. It was the biggest paycheck I had ever gotten. And again, if $60 felt like a lot of money before, 162 I just felt like, what am I going to buy with this? I mean, I can go to the mall and get anything I want. Yeah. <laughs> I just felt so rich. I'm going to go get a beeper. Seriously. (laughs) And I had earned that money. No one had given it to me. I mean, nobody ever gave me money, right? That was my hard-earned money. So then, and at at Coco's, 
I was, my paychecks were about $90. And I'll tell you why this is important right now, or was important to me at the time. So my manager at Coco's liked the way I worked. And like, there's this thing in Spanish, like, era bien movida, right? Mm-hmm. I would move and, I mean, and also I was younger. Put me to do that work now, mm, my <laughs> back would give in, like, a minute into it. So he says to me, hey, I've been watching you, and I really like the way you work. Like, people really like you. You're good with people. He said, um, what do you think about serving? And I thought, oh, well, um, you know, I'm okay with it. He's like, but if I'm, if I'm going to put you as a server, I'm going to give you more hours. So I need you to leave your job at Jack in the Box. Uh, and I remember, <laughs> I laugh because I remember that to me, that was such a hard life decision. To leave Jack in the Box to work more hours at Coco. Because I had nobody mentoring me. I had nobody giving me advice. Nobody knew how much money I was making or giving me like life decision choices, advice, right? It was just me trying to, having to make a decision. And I I remember telling him... Decisions like that, though, is just more than math. It's more about what's going to fit your lifestyle also, though. Yes, yes. But he's asking me to leave my other job. Yeah. And by by now, I'm making money, right? I mean, it's hard work, but I'm making my, my, my dinerito. And... He says, I need you to leave Jack in the Box because I'm going to give you more hours. And, you know, once you graduate, I'll give you the daytime shift and you're going to be here for a few hours. And I remember telling him, but my paycheck's so much bigger at Jack in the Box. I only make $90 here. I, what I was struggling with, I didn't want to give up that paycheck because I thought it was so much money. Yeah. And I mean, I'm in high school and I'm smart in many ways, but there were some, t- some in some areas I was very naive. You know, I just thought I, c- I came from so much poverty already because of all the years of struggling that I thought a $162 check was so much money. So he said to me, Erica, you're going to make really good money off of tips. That 162, there are going to be days where you might even make it in tips doing a double. He's like, believe me. People are going to like you. You're going to make good tips. There's good money here. And this is during a time when Coco's was thriving. At least the one I was in was like popping. Mm-hmm. So I went home and I thought, gosh, this is a real, my hard life decision at the time. I wish, the, I wish those were the decisions I had to make now. <laughs> no. But at the time, that was really hard. So I went home and I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? So I decided to quit Jack in the Box. And that funny story now, funny, at the time it wasn't so much. I go to Jack in the Box and I tell the manager that I'm going to leave. I can't give her my two-week notice. Have I told you the story? Uh, that I have to, I'm going to leave um, because they offer me more hours on my other job. And she looks at me and she says, you're such an ungrateful woman. I'm never going to hire you here again. Don't you ever even think about coming here back here again because you never will have a job. This here was again. a woman telling you this? This is a woman telling me this. And I felt a little bit of fear because I thought, shoot, what if I knew what if I need to come back here? Again, no one's mentoring me, right? And then I thought, in my head I'm telling myself, Erica, you gotta make this work because you can't come back here. You gotta make this other job work. Had she treated you that bad before? She wasn't, she was, I mean, she wasn't terrible, but 
her world was that job. <laughs> I mean, you can understand if you, you know, you're talking to a young child right. who's telling you that they're leaving you one job to go to a better job mm-hmm. and you're trying to give them some motivation to right. not come back. So you're right. trying to be harsh with them. That'd be one story. But that it didn't feel like that with you with her. It felt like this chick really means that you are ungrateful. Yeah, she really thought I was very ungrateful. That's she <laughs> and she told me I gave you a job, I gave you a chance, and this is how you pay me. So I apologize. Try doing that to me now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right? It it wouldn't it wouldn't be the same story. But at the time, I I'm sh- I remember apologizing to her and telling her how sorry I was. And I was just down the street. So I start working at Coco's and I start serving tables. And he was right. Uh, I start making decent money for my age and decent money that I'm able to go to a restaurant and order what I want off the menu and not have to say... I only have $10, and this is what I have to eat, right? And I could fill up the tank for once and not only say, <laughs> I only have $10, and that's it, right? Did you have your own car? Yes and no. We had a car that was shared by Edith, myself, and at times my mom. No. And so we all share the car. And so my goal was to get my own car. Eventually I did. And so I worked at Coco's for six years straight. And something that I haven't said uh, during this conversation is that I am undocumented. I have Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, uh, DACA, known as DACA, which allows me to have a work permit and a Social Security. But all through a huge part of the story I told you, I didn't know I was undocumented. So coming into this country, even though I came in with a visa, I didn't know that I didn't have documents. I didn't know that I, at the time, the common word to use was illegal. Mm-hmm. So I began to have a lot of shame and feel embarrassed. Once you found that out? Yes. Because it was very, very taboo to come out and say I'm undocumented. Right? It was people lived under the shadows, very much so at the time. And within my community, we would talk amongst ourselves, the undocumented people, and there was this thing of just keep it to yourself and, and keep quiet. But at that time, I remember there was a lot of raids. Like, they would go to, like, the Home Depot and try to pick up people at the parking lots. And try. ICE would go and try to pick everybody right. up. Right. And that, that would fuel. That would fuel. The fear. The fear in others, like myself, to not say anything and say, yeah, I'm not going to say I'm undocumented. Absolutely not. I'm terrified, right? And so I worked under the table. Well, not under the table. I had to give them a Social Security at Coco's. And then one day they found out that that wasn't me, and they fired me. Who gave you that Social Security number? I made it up. Oh, you just made it up. I made it up. So you made up a number, and you worked there for six years, mm-hmm. and then after that, they found out that that wasn't you. They found out that I wasn't me because a cook, the story goes that a cook was having an affair with the bus girl. Yes, it's like a soap opera. The bus girl, they were both Mexican, they were both immigrants, but the bus girl had adjusted her status and was a citizen. 
the, the, the cook wasn't. And he decides to break up the relationship. He no longer wants to continue having this affair with, with this woman. The woman becomes so insulted and, and upset over him leaving her that she calls the immigration authorities and says, this man at this place is undocumented. He has no papers. And you need to go get him. No, she did So when they contacted the company, the corporation, the company said, we can get into legal problems just singling him out. So if we're going to do a checkup, we have to check everyone so it's fair. And so he doesn't say, there's discrimination against me, so we're going to check everyone's documents. So they ran everyone's Social Security to ensure that it matched, but they did a deeper search. And when that happened, the only people... <laughs> whose name didn't match their social, was him and me. So he was fired, and then they called me into the office. Never messed with the scorned woman. (laughs) Yes. And he said, this is is what happened. You can tell me the truth. And I was, like, stuck to my story. That is my social. You made a mistake. It's on you. He's like, okay, then I'm going to need you to go to the Social Security Administration office and bring me a letter confirming that that social is yours. I'll give you that if you go in, especially if you lose your social, right? And bring it to me, and that's how you will be able to continue. So I couldn't get that letter because that social was made up, and I didn't have a social to begin with, so what was I going to get? No. So I showed up to work the next, the next day, my shift as regular. I clock in, do my thing, and I'm already serving my first table. And the manager comes in from the back. He's, like, walking from behind me. And he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm working. I'm starting my shift. He's like, no. Did you bring the paper? I said, no, I didn't. He's like, you can't be here. I need you to get off the clock and get off the premises right this moment. And he's talking to me like this. And I had been there for six years by now. I mean, I was there all of the time. Like, this was my second home. I knew the customers. The regulars knew me. I knew them. They would bring me Christmas gifts. I mean, we were like a family almost. And this man is now telling me, you, I took it as, you are of no value because you have no social security, so get out of here. We don't need you. You're replaceable. And he brought me into his office, and he said, just tell me the truth. You have a social yes or no, one that works for you. Are you going to be able to get me this letter? And he was visibly irritated and upset. And I said, I can't get it for you. He's like, I'm very sorry. I know this isn't fair, but you're fired. And he gave me my last paycheck and he let me go. This is in 2006, seven, 2007. Hmm. So then I leave there, that place and I... <laughs> The same story with my mom's happening. I don't know what you're going to do, but you need to pay because I started selling cheese when I was eight. Oh, God. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know what you're going to happen. So this is, there's a recession going on at this time, right? But you told her about not having the social. Yeah, well, she knew. She broke it to me because when I was in high school, I wanted to apply to um, college. And remember, I love school. So I'm hearing about my friends. I'm going to apply to UCLA. I'm going to apply here. I'm going to apply there. And this is, we had computers. Okay, I'm not that old. We had computers. But during this time, you would fill it out still. So 
uh, had gone to this like school event and the counselors were there and they told me, fill it out. We need your social here. Bring it tomorrow. I go, this is in high school. I go home. I tell my mom, I need my social security here because I, I'm going to go to the university. I'm going to apply. And she says, you don't have a social. So I said, okay, well, let's go get one. Where do we go get one? Where, where do we go? And she's like, they give them at the Social Security Administration. I said, okay, well, let's go right now. And she said, no, you can't get one. And I'm like, why, are they closed? And she's like, no, you can't get one because you're illegal. You don't have one. You're illegal. And I, I think when I look back at the time, there were a lot of clues, right, mm. that led me to know that I was undocumented. But there was never, again, the, the, one of the themes of this talk has been no one ever sat down and talked to me ever about anything. So it was like blues clues, right? <laughs> you had to figure this out on your own. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't know until I, I bring it up to her. And she's like, you have no papers. So, so I went back to school the next day in high school, and I told the counselor, um, I filled out the application, by the way, because nobody was going to take that right from me. So I filled it out, and by then I had learned how to sign like my mom. I don't even think she signed a paper, because if, if the social wasn't there, it was not complete, and she, my mom wasn't going to sign. So I signed it for her. My mom doesn't know that, but I signed it for her. Uh, and I submitted it, and I told the counselor, here you go, it's filled out. And she's looking at it, and there's no social. And I didn't know that a social was needed for those type of things, right? At the time, it was not anymore. And she says, where's your social security? And I straight up told her, I don't have one. She said, did I not tell you to tell your mom to give it to you? And I said, I did, but she told me I don't have one because I'm illegal. This is how I told the lady. <laughs> you talked to your counselor that way. Well, I wasn't rude, but I yeah, told yeah, her, yeah, told I don't her. have one because I'm illegal. And it didn't cross your mind that they, that could get you in any trouble? No. Yeah. And she's like, you don't have a social? I said, no, I don't have a social. She's like, then you can't go to college. And that, that hurt. That right there is more than me not having a social. <laughs> it was me not having access to an education. That really hurt me. It, 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 it broke my heart. And to this day, it stinks. And I was angry because of the injustice that it meant. That I was so different, and it didn't matter how good of a student I was, how hard I worked, if I showed up on time, how much sacrifices I was making to work and show up to school on time. It's not going to make a difference. And be clean and do what I needed to do, right, to be a good student and raise my hand and talk when I needed to and not talk when I didn't need to and not do drugs, right, and do whatever I needed to do, not to sound sarcastic because that's not good. But I did everything that I was told that I needed to do and everything that I didn't need to do, I didn't do it. And it was still not good enough. And I just felt so discouraged. And I cried, and I was frustrated. And then I thought, well, I'm going to go to school. So I registered at the community college. 
So I went to community college, and then once I graduated from community college, I wanted to go to continue my education to get a bachelor's. This is all while working at Coco's, by the way. At the time, the units were $26 a unit, and I would walk up to the registrar's office. I don't think they're that pay much cash. anymore. And I would pay cash, yeah. and I'd be like, here you go. And it felt so good because I was paying for it, right? Mm-hmm. And it was my hard-earned money. And then once I, I got my associates, um, I looked into go to transferring, and at the time, there was nothing for undocumented students. There was no DREAM Act. There were no scholarships for undocumented students. It was pay out of pocket or nothing, and I couldn't afford it, so I didn't. So now, I'm not in school, and I just got fired from my job. And so, this whole time, it, no, uh, like you said, nobody's talking to you about anything, but you never heard about trying to get your citizenship or anything like that? Oh, yes. I mean, I, you know, I was not at home just sitting down waiting for a miracle to happen. I understand that. that. That's never yeah. been me, and that's not me to this day. <laughs> So I started moving, right? I yeah. started asking, I started seeking, I started researching, I started talking to, creating a community hub and reaching out to community spaces where other undocumented people existed and when, where I saw their undocumented people thriving. Yeah. Like, how did you go to school? How did you do this, right? And so the answer was, there's nothing right now. There's nothing for you. There's nothing legally. There's nothing in terms of policy. There's no executive action. There's nothing. There's nothing. So you just be stagnant because there's nothing. So I thought, well, this is a waiting game. I'll just have to wait. So then by then, the DREAM Act starting to come out. There's conversations about the DREAM Act, and there, there are conversations about DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. So I began to, excuse me, advocate for these immigration policies, immigration improvements in, in terms of the law to really lobby Explain what the DREAM Act is. The DREAM Act allows you to get funding, in-state funding, to go to college. Okay. Right? For college. For college. And for undergrad. Okay. Um, What is DACA? Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It's an executive order that was signed by, at the time, President Obama. And this is for under 18. So you need to have come here at at a certain time, I believe... June or July of 2001, by then. And then uh, you needed to uh, complete at least four years of high school, your, your high school level education, and have no criminal um, history. History, And then you'll be able to. So DACA wasn't just for under 18. Oh, and then pay. Yeah, and then you, you need, need to, pay. to pay to be on a list. No, which, you, no, you need to pay to apply. Yeah, and the 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 which pay is four ninety five, four hundred ninety five dollars. Yes, I thought it was more than that. No, it's um, four hundred ninety five. Okay, so and then you it gets renewed every two years, and every two years you need to pay again. Oof. So it gives you a employment authorization card, and that's DACA. That's DACA. So with cool. that, you get a social security. And you're able to legally work. And but DREAM you, Act was different. The DREAM Act allows you to get funding for school. Oh, okay. Undergrad. And community college. Nobody ever... You know, I'm confused about DACA, too, because, you know, when you hear the name deferred action, you would think that people who are signing that up are 
here to get an education, but then go back to the country later. But that's not what people are talking about, though, right? I mean, you, 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 I have heard of DACA recipients. We're called DACA recipients or DACA applicants like myself. Yeah. Who have gotten DACA, worked on their money, and left. But one thing that I want people to understand is that DACA recipients, you need to meet certain requirements, to, first of all, to qualify for it. So it's not like someone can just come into the U.S., and say, I'm going to apply, get, get a work permit, start working, and then go back to wherever I came from, right? My host country. DACA recipients have roots here, like myself. Yeah. I came here as a child. Yes, I lived in Mexico, but many, of, many DACA recipients were babies, days old. When they came to the this United States. This is all they know. Yeah. Some of them don't even speak Spanish. This is their, this is their country, right? They're Latino Americanos. And so... The idea of working, getting your money, and then leaving just is not a rational one. Mm-hmm. Because we're leaving to what? What am I going back to? Mexicali? There's a, there's a reason why people are leaving places like that. Mexicali is not my Mexicali. home anymore. Yeah. I mean, my dad lives there, but I don't have friends. My family, my dad's there, but I, I don't have... I talk to my dad now. We have, we have a friendly, very respectful, mature relationship now. We talk, we check in. But I don't have moral, emotional support, right? I don't have roots there. My, 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 my life, it's here. This is my home. Yeah. And so DACA, it's temporary. It doesn't give us a pathway to citizenship. And if you want to pursue grad school, get a master's or get a PhD level education or get a Juris Doctorate degree, which is what I was doing by going to law school, you don't get any funding. So you're on your own. You're having to pay out of pocket. Extremely expensive. Extremely expensive. So that's why many of us, like myself, I went into law school, couldn't afford it anymore, and you end up leaving like I did because I can't pay for it. Because... It's just me. And each semester is $33,000. Just tuition. Just a semester. Just a semester. And there are, if you do the full-time program, there are six semesters at $33,000. And that does not include your books. That does not include the laptop, the Wi-Fi, the water that you should be drinking to hopefully stay hydrated, (laughs) and the food that you should be consuming to stay alive. That's right. right? And also, where are you going to live? And who's going to pay for my cell phone so I can stay in touch? I mean, <laughs> yeah. right? So, um, so I ended up going back to get my. Okay, so now Cocos is over. They kicked me out. They fired me. <laughs> they say bye, they said bye, Felicia, and I have no job and and there's no DACA, and I'm living at home. And your mom's trying to kick you out the door to go get a job. She she's pressuring me for sure. No. Right? She she hasn't she wasn't kicking me out. And she wasn't telling me, you're going to be out if you don't pay. I think she did say that at one point. <laughs> um, but I had saved enough to be able to pay while I was not working. But imagine the amount of pressure on me or on anyone who doesn't have income coming in. To, and you know that if you don't pay, uh, you're out, right? And so Not only that, but... You try to have a job and they kicked you off. Yes. Yes. 
So now I start looking for a job. This is recession time, and I get a job at a dry cleaners. Have I told you I work at a dry cleaners? <laughs> so I get a job at a dry cleaners, and... This is at the time when the, the housing market crashed. Yes, in Fontana, and I'm so happy I have a job, and they're paying me under the table. They were paying me $7 an hour, <sighs> and I didn't care. I was just so happy, and um, this lady, the owner... She was so mean. She treated me so poorly. She would yell at me all the time in front of she, customers. Uh, Hispanic? She was, Asian? She was uh, of Indian descent. Oh. Love Indian people. They're amazing people. Okay, this, is, this, was, this was her. <laughs> this was just that one. <laughs> this was her. <laughs> Disclaimer. <laughs> Wonderful. I love the food too. Wonderful people. But she was evil. <laughs> her name was Manju. And if you're listening to this, Manju... You were not very nice. <laughs> and I think she was having an affair. But anyway, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> and her um, husband's name, and then her boyfriend's <laughs> name was, and then, yeah. okay. I'm pretty certain of that. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I'm there, and she's terrible, terrible, terrible. And I didn't have a car at this time. Well, we were, again, we were sharing the car with my mom and stuff. So um, I no longer have a car, and I think that's because there's no money, so the car's my mom's now. <laughs> Plus, I have no money for gas anyway, so. And I would take the bus to go to work, and we would. I remember we would close at 7 p.m., and the, the bus would come at 7.03, and I had to be across the street because I'd go in the opposite way from where the dry cleaners was at. So I remember that. This is just a side story. Uh, I would start closing shop and everything by 6.45, counting the money, and... If there's one thing I have is I wanted to make sure that I was being ethical and honest. So by 7, I would, I would not leave before then, but by 7, everything was done. I would close and I would run because there were times when the bus left me because it would come a little earlier. earlier. Yeah. And then how am I going to get home? It's 7. It's nighttime. There's no Uber or Lyft at this time, okay? No. And I have a crappy phone, so it's not like I can download the internet. And you know, So I would run and... She would get so mad at me, and she would say to me, why are you closing at 7? Why are you leaving at 7? And I would say, well, you know, I'm here till 7. She's like, no, you close at 7, then you count the money, then you do everything else. And I remember telling her, yes, but my bus comes at 7.03, and my shift ends at 7. And she said, I don't care. We close at 7, but you close the door at 7. And so... So she wanted you to work off the clock. Exactly. Exactly. But at the time, right, I'm already more outspoken, but I don't want to lose my job because I need it. And I struggle to find that job because there's like no work. And I'm terrified to go anywhere else. That may ask me for a social because of what had just happened. I'm terrified. Yeah. I mean, I'm afraid. So I sucked it up and I knew what she was doing was wrong and I knew I was being exploited and I was hungry all the time. <laughs> and there was a grocery store next door and I remember having $20 for the week to eat. And this lady, I don't remember her name, but this lady took a liking to me at the, at the dry cleaners. Such a nice lady. I still remember her face. I don't remember her name. And she would go to the bakery. She had this routine where she would go to this bakery, get bread, and then come pick up her and her husband's clothing. And she took a liking to me. And I don't know if I looked hungry to her or what, 
I don't look hungry now, but <laughs> I looked hungry then. And she would give me bread. And she would say, this is for you. And that's, she fed me. She would feed me. And I don't understand how some people would like, this is how they do their laundry. Like they would, they take their stuff to the dry cleaners, right? And I, I to this day, I don't understand because that takes money. But at the time, cleaning a shirt there was one twenty-five. I still remember $1.25 was like the best price in Fontana. And she would go there all the time and she would take me bread and she would give me two or three bolillos and the bolillos would last me until she'd come back. Hmm. And I would eat. That's it. Just bread and water. And whatever, bread and water. And then whatever I could find at home, right? Whatever I could get. And then eat, eat, I would eat that bread. I said, well, yo, so if this lady remembers that, thank you. You fed me. <laughs> um, and yeah. And then after that, I thought I can't be doing this. This is like, I deserve better. Like that has always been my motto. I deserve better. And this is not, uh, funny enough. I was not applying that in my relationships with my boyfriends at the time, but <laughs> I, I learned that now. And I would tell myself I deserve better. And, I thought, I need to get out of here because I'm not being treated right and I'm being exploited and she's treating me really poorly. Okay, freaks. There's obviously so much going on with this story that we had to do two parts of this episode. Please go to part two for the rest of this story.